This is Vivian Howard, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Hornet. Chef Vivian Howard's new show, Somewhere South, recently debuted on PBS stations across the country. The show is her follow-up to the wildly popular series, A Chef's Life. Chef Howard was the first woman to win a Peabody Award for a cooking show since Julia Child, and she was a semi-finalist for the James Beard Award's Best Chef Southeast five consecutive times. Somewhere South takes Chef Vivian to different southern locations, where she investigates dishes that are universal to all cultures. In the fourth episode of the series, Vivian's explorations of pickles brings her to Kentucky, where she visits Lexington, Woodford County, and Whitesburg. Along the way, Vivian is guided by Chef Sam Four, who you can hear discuss the visit in Episode 9. Sam takes her to visit Woodford Reserve, as well as to see Smithtown Seafood's Chef Agnes Marrero. Then Laura Smith of the Appalachian Impact Fund takes Vivian to Letcher County, where Regina Neese and Carolyn Sturgill show how they make chow chow at the Kane Kitchen in Whitesburg. In this episode, Vivian Howard and I discuss her new show and her visit to Kentucky. She tells about her first visit to a holler, her unexpected run-in with an Osage Orange, as well as her first visit to the Kentucky Distillery Woodford Reserve. We also chat about the group Brown in the South and Louisville chef Edward Lee's appearance on the dumpling episode of Somewhere South. Also, Vivian and I talk about the situation facing restaurants during the current shutdown, which was just beginning when she and I spoke. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and leave a five-star rating. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting patreon.com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with Chef Vivian Howard. Chef Vivian Howard, welcome to Eat Kentucky. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is uh, a busy time with recording of this. People are shutting down restaurants and going to uh, delivery only, and uh, I know that that's stressful for restaurateurs like you. It is. I mean, I, uh, being from eastern North Carolina, we have uh, suffered, you know, multiple uh, hurricanes and floods, and our kitchen burned about six years ago. So, you know, um, Challenges like this are not incredibly new to, the, to us, but this is really unprecedented. And, um, you know, to use the word scary, I don't think is really accurate. It's just very sure. uncertain. And, but, you know, I do find this weird comfort in that it's not something that's uh, being experienced regionally. Um, it's like nationwide, industry-wide, and it really feels like we're all in this together. And um, often people uh, do their, their best work and um, are the best, their best selves, 
in moments like this, and that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, I've seen I've Facebook friends with various chefs here locally, and I've seen several of them sharing the pickup and delivery information from other restaurants that aren't their own, just to let other people know what's out there and what's available in order to help each other. Yeah, you know, I mean, our industry has, you know, come to the aid of, of basically, you know, every tragic thing that's happened in our country in the past decade. And it, it really shows the, the type of people, um, the hospitality and giving uh, driven people that we are. And, and I think you see that in, in times like this, especially. Well, on the bright side... A lot of people are at home, and you are riding to the rescue with some TV watching for them. Yeah, you know, I never thought that that would be um, something, you know, we were, that that is a, uh, the silver lining in all this is that I think uh, people will be at home on Friday nights and hopefully tuned in to PBS to watch our show. So at, at the time uh, of this recording, your show has not started yet, but by the time people hear this, it will have, and that's uh, end of March, March 27th. Is that correct? Yes. And then there are six episodes, I believe. Sorry, yes, six one-hour episodes uh, that will air on PBS at 9 p.m. on Friday nights, and they uh, every episode is about a dish that every culture and every community shares and has some version of it. So your, your former show, which we all miss and loved, is, uh, was, was primarily focused in and around your home in eastern North Carolina. But this show, you travel around. Yes. Um, we go to multiple places in the South, um, and really made an effort to go to, uh, you know, places that are not the usual suspects necessarily. Um, uh, you know, a lot of food media has covered places like New Orleans um, and uh, Charleston and, you know, Houston. Um, and we really made a, a choice to go to smaller towns um, that are not often, their stories are not often told. Right. And, and of course, we are glad that that, uh, that brought you to Kentucky. And we were, uh, we're, we're excited about a little exposure there. Yes, yes. That was um, going to uh, Kentucky was one of, you know, my favorite parts of filming this show. I've never, I haven't spent much time in Kentucky or in the Appalachian mountains and um you know it marked my first time ever in a holler well right i i uh, got a chance to preview your episode and you you state that that was your first time in a holler so i i was surprised by that as somebody who grew up in eastern kentucky hollers were part of everyday life so it's interesting to see somebody who's not been in one yeah well it was also i i never even knew really what it meant to be a holler and i um I was informed that it means you have to turn around to get out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You can't keep going. And let, well, I guess you can, but you're not going to want to. You'd have to climb. You'd have to climb a hill if you wanted to. If you wanted to escape. So I actually just. I didn't grow up in a holler. I grew up on the side of a hill. But uh, <laughs> but there were there were lots of hollers around. 
So let, let's back up just a little bit. This episode, Where You Come to Kentucky, is on pickling and pickles. Yes, it is. It's um, part of the pickle episode. And, you know, we, we, we were lured to Kentucky um, by, uh, a me- we, we filmed in Asheville uh, for this Chow Chow Festival. Right. Um, and uh, it, through that experience, I met Sam, who... Yes, Sam, Chef Sam Four, who has been a guest on this podcast uh, recently. So folks here should be familiar with her. And she was just so uh, bubbly and energetic and enthusiastic. And I thought her food was really interesting and delicious. And she was also such a huge advocate and... Um, wonderful mouthpiece for Lexington, Kentucky. So we decided that we would, um, you know, connect the the thread of pickles with uh, Sam. So we, we um, decided to go to Lexington and uh, uh, participate in one of her pop-ups and then use that opportunity to, to go to really the, um, the, I guess maybe the birthplace of Chow Chow, uh, in the hollers of eastern Kentucky in a little town called Whitesburg. Right, and down in, in Letcher County, which is down right in the corner of our state. And actually, my grandmother was from Whitesburg and uh, moved a couple of counties over to where I was from in Clay County, which is Manchester. I know that those are those are towns you don't know, but uh, it, it's not too far. And um, the footage that you show looks a lot like home to me and where I grew up. Yeah, I love that you're describing um, where, where, describing Kentucky in terms of counties. That's a very uh, rural thing to do. And like growing up, you know, I grew up in eastern North Carolina, also a rural area. And when people would ask me uh, where I was from, I would always say Lenore County. But if you're from a city, that seems like a very weird way to identify your, your home place. But um, so I, I, I feel you there. Right. Well, it, it, defining where you're from by county is is the common way of doing it in Kentucky. Everybody everybody thinks of counties unless it's like Lexington or Louisville. Uh, everybody thinks in terms of counties. So if I tell someone I'm from Clay County, then that's that's where they know. The, the fact is that where I grew up wasn't even a town. So Manchester was the county seat. But I grew up 10 miles outside of Manchester and, you know, just sort of unincorporated no man's land, I guess. So there, there wasn't a place I could describe that anybody would know. So you go with the county. Right. You got to go bigger. That's right. That's right. So you go to Asheville uh, at the beginning of this for to, to give a lecture on pickles. And you connect with the Brown in the South group that was having a dinner there in the episode. Yes, yes. Um, and they, the, the Brown in the South group, uh, I guess, as you know, is a group of, uh, you know, South Asian uh, chefs who uh, have found community um, with one another and are, you know, going around the South doing these dinners that are an expression of the food of their cultures blended with the food of their Southern culture. And it's um, it's, it's such a, I've been to several events of theirs and it's always delicious and always, a, a warm and welcoming event. 
And um, so, yeah, that's that's where I met Sam. And that's how we eventually ended up in Lexington. Well, Sam assured us on the podcast when she was on that she was going to try to get a Brown and South uh, dinner here in Lexington before too long. So our fingers are crossed on that, that we can that we can participate in those dinners. Well, if she said she's going to do it, I would imagine she will. <laughs> I I suspect you're correct on that. I, uh, as, as you said, Sam could be pretty convincing, I think. So during that, uh, I, one, of the, one of the amusing things to me personally was when uh, uh, Chef Chidi Kumar was, was making what she described as a mango pickle, but then, of course, made it, ends up making it with, with watermelon rind, if, I'm, uh, if I remember correctly. And, of course, that's one of the themes that we see is use, taking perhaps techniques from other places and applying them to uh, local ingredients. That's sort of the, the southernness, maybe, that's, that's in that. Yes, I mean, that's one of the, the themes that really emerges from the show is like, you know, no matter where we come from or our backgrounds, um, you know, the traditions and the techniques that we bring with us, um, you know, how do they shape the place where we land? And then how does the place where we land shape those traditions? And that um, pickle that Chidi makes is a perfect example of that because she's bringing, you know, Indian technique and spices um, and applying, you know, a very, uh, you know, typical Southern ingredient, the watermelon rind. And, and what is the product is this, you know, one of the best pickles I've ever had, honestly. Sure. And, and something, something familiar yet. It's also unique. Yes. Yes. Familiar, um, but different and, and, you know, a, a real expression of the type of cooking that's really exciting here in the South right now. Well, I, I was going to tell you, I once had a run-in with a mango pickle a few years ago. I was in India and visited a family. They invited me to their home for a meal, and the meal was served. And I noticed that uh, the, the wife of the, of the husband was, was bringing him items out that she was not giving to us. So I was there with a, a friend of mine who's from, who was from Alabama. And so I, I asked about it. So, so what do you, what do you bring out? And they were like, oh, well, this is mango pickle. It's, it's very hot. And I said, oh, well, I, I would like to try some. Mm-hmm. And they, they sort of warned that that might not be wise. And I, of course I was insistent and they were very kind and gave me some, they had younger daughters. And when they saw that I was about to try this mango pickle, they both, they, they both just started leaning in with big smiles on their faces. And I took a bite of that. And it is to this day the hottest thing I've ever had in my mouth. I have, I have no idea what it tasted like just because the heat overwhelmed me. And the girls, their their young daughters, just broke into hysterical laughter because because I had tried this and and they knew that it was it was way too hot for my uh, my American taste. Yeah, when you said you had a run in, I knew it wasn't going to be good. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's it's downhill from from there. So Sam brought you to Lexington first. And you got to you got to go to to a horse farm and uh, and also Woodford Reserve Distillery. Yes, we went. Um, well, first we went to uh, one of her uh, pop ups, and we went to a horse farm, which was so beautiful. And so Kentucky. And um, I wasn't going to go to Kentucky without like 
uh, going and drinking bourbon. And uh, so we went to Woodford. And that was also such an interesting experience and oddly tied into uh, the theme of the episode, which was pickles and in some ways fermentation. Sure. Uh, and Woodford, there's hardly a, a more beautiful spot than, than the campus over at Woodford. They, they just have such a gorgeous campus there. Oh, it was beautiful. And I, you know, I don't know if this made the episode, but um, as we were walking around, someone said, oh, there were all these round, green, um, fruit-looking things on the ground. And someone said, oh, that's a pawpaw. I was like, that's not a pawpaw. But, you know, I was convinced by someone else that it was, in fact, a pawpaw. And so I, you know, picked one of these things up and bit into it. And I can tell you, it was not a pawpaw. <laughs> I, w- I was going to ask you about that. I was reliably informed about this story that you're telling me that yeah, it did happen. It, um, it was, in fact, a fruit, but not an edible one. Um, and there were a lot of them on the Woodford campus. And now, you know, in retrospect, if there had been that many pawpaws hanging around, I'm sure someone would have collected them. That's right. Um, so I understand you got a hold of an Osage orange is what you, is what yes. you actually found. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I, and that was all before the bourbon. So it was not lack of, um, of, of <laughs> it was not judgment. It was just poor decision-making. Yeah. I, it's best to avoid those. I think they're all over the place here. Is that something that you don't have in North Carolina? Well, clearly not because <laughs> I, I, I picked it up and bit into it like it was an apple. No, I think they're they're pretty much useless other than being decorative and I have heard that you can put them like in a in a closet and they'll keep away, you know, insects or you know, moths or spiders and so forth. I don't know if that's true or not, but I to my knowledge other than having them on display in a basket in your hallway or something, I don't know that there's any use for them. Well, I would imagine it would keep away um, moths and pests because, uh, you know, it's very, I can tell you what it tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, I think you're the only person I know who's who's tried one. So, <laughs> Well, <laughs> we, we, we'll probably need to keep it that way. Sam yeah. was not naive enough to bite into it, but she was I, encouraging me to do so. I'm sure, I'm sure she was. That was very helpful of her. I, I wonder what one might taste like pickled, perhaps if you... Uh, if you pickled it the right way. Uh, panic and, um, and bad, <laughs> I'm sure. So you have to start with good ingredients. Yes. So you you visited the Woodford campus. Are you a, a bourbon connoisseur? I'm a bourbon drinker. I don't know that I'm a, a, a connoisseur of much. Um, but, I, you know, Woodford is uh, one of the bourbons in my home. Um, I, I, I like it's, you know, it's, it's reliable, it's tasty, it's, uh, it's smooth. I like the bottle. Um, so. yes. well, right. It, it is a very attractive bottle, which is, uh, which is not nice for, nice for viewing. It's good. It's good to have good aesthetics with those sorts of things. Yes. And I save, uh, bottles like that and repurpose them as, uh, vases, Ah, uh, okay, very nice. Well, and every year they come out with a uh, with a Kentucky Derby uh, bottle that's distributed around here. I don't know how widely it gets outside of Kentucky, but of course, we have just learned here that the Derby has been postponed. So, we're everyone in Kentucky is in shock because uh, because we're not going to have the Derby in May like we're supposed to. Wow, yeah, that's a major um, cultural touchstone. 
I, I, it, it's the first time I think they said in 75 years that it's not been run uh, on the first Saturday of May. So we uh, we're it, we're dealing with something almost no one remembers at all. So that's uh, it, it's it's an odd time for sure. Wonder why it was canceled 75 years ago. Uh, I, th- I think they said it was a World War II issue that they had. Uh, I, I don't know the particular circumstances, but I think it had to do with World War II. Wow. So we're basically on, we're on wartime footing here. Yeah, uh, right we're right now there. With, this, with the coronavirus. But, well, I'm, I'm glad you got to go to Woodford. It's, it's lovely. And you really need to come back and do some, do some touring on the Bourbon Trail because there are, uh, there are a number of, uh, of really beautiful uh, campuses and distilleries. The near near to Woodford is Castle and Key, which is the renovated old Taylor Distillery that actually looks like a castle. He had built it, interestingly enough, in the late 19th century uh, as a tourist destination. That was his thinking then, and then it was abandoned essentially in ruins. And this uh, new group of investors came in a few years ago and have completely renovated it. And it's it's really uh, an astonishing thing to see. I'm sure that's stunning. Well, as soon as this CV is, is um, uh, you know, no longer a threat, I, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than go bopping along the bourbon trail. Oh, yeah. You absolutely need to. Let us know when you come and we'll, uh, we'll show you around a little bit. While we take a brief break, I wanted to tell you about my day job and sometimes nights and weekends. I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. When I'm not eating or posting about food, I help people find the home of their dreams in the Lexington area. If you need to buy or sell your home, please email, text, or call alancornett at kw.com or 859-327-1818. Now let's talk more about food. You came to Lexington and you visited one of Sam's pop-ups. Of course, she does Sri Lankan uh, bites here in Lexington on occasion <laughs> when she, when she's in town, Sam's when she's been, in town, she's that's on, right. I know she's bopping along the, the food media trail. She is. My first question to her was, is your suitcase empty or not? <laughs> that was, and uh, amazingly it was, but yeah, she's, she is a, a busy gal. And uh, so she does those pop-ups. And then, then you also uh, visited with, uh, with one of the chefs from, uh, Smithtown Seafood, which is uh, one of the Weta Michael uh, restaurants here in town, uh, Chef Agnes Marrero. Yes, and she was just the most delightful um, woman, and just just exuberant and um, warm. And uh, we made uh, a escabeche, a catfish escabeche, which is a pickled fish. Um, and, you know, it was, I believe, you know, uh, developed in her culture to uh, allow for a day of rest. So, you know, you would make the pickled fish and it would sit um, overnight and, and cure and develop flavor. And then that's what you would eat on the Sabbath uh, because you weren't supposed to work. Right. And she she made an interesting comment that that goes along with what we were discussing earlier with Chidi Kumar, which is uh, when you're in the in the grocery and, and finding the ingredients, she's picking up things that aren't necessarily 
her first choice, but it's what's available. And she makes the point that you use what's in front of you and you make it happen. And that's that's kind of a theme, I think, again, touching back to that that theme of ingredients. Right. It's absolutely the the same theme of like, you know, you bring these traditions with you and you settle somewhere and you figure out how to make those traditions sing wherever you are. And um, I'm sure that they were not making uh, escabeche with catfish in Puerto Rico, but because she's in Kentucky, that's exactly what she's doing. And, you know, that is, is the overall kind of message and theme of the show and, and the beauty of, of the way our community is, is being shaped at this moment in time. Right. And there's, there's a lot of, of influence from uh, Latin America in Lexington in particular uh, right now with uh, a lot of workers come in to work on the horse farms. And uh, with that, uh, there's, there's been uh, a lot of infusion of Latin American cuisine and it's, it's very, very good. <laughs> Lexington is, is really a hub for, for really good Latin uh, uh, cooking. Right. Well, you know, much like Eastern North Carolina, wherever you find agriculture, you find a lot of uh, Latin um, influence on your foodways. And that's uh, one of that, that's one of the best parts about Eastern North Carolina at um, this moment is that, you know, they have inflected our region's cuisine. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. So in the episode, uh, Sam hands you off to Laura Smith. Uh, who takes you to Whitesburg. And Laura is, I'm, I'm in negotiations with Laura to get her on the phone. We got her on the phone, on the podcast, but we got put off because of our, of the current self-isolating social distancing, but we're going to, we're going to have her on to talk about a new book she has out. But uh, she takes you down to the Cane Kitchen in Whitesburg. Yes, yes. We, uh, Laura took me, you know, and actually I had met Laura several years ago. She came to North Carolina and interviewed my husband and I just after A Chef's Life came out. And um, I remember uh, thinking like, wow, she really gets it. And um, I think it's in part because she uh, kind of represents a rural community and understands the challenges that are a part of um, our our rural communities today. And so, yeah, she takes us to Whitesburg um, to an acquaintance's garden. And, you know, this was in early fall. And so we gleaned from the garden and then went to Cane Kitchen and uh, made chow chow with two, I would say, chow chow aficionados, uh, Regina Neese and uh, Carolyn Sturgill. And they both had, it was interesting because, you know, I, I've always eaten chow chow. I've made chow chow for years and I kind of assumed there was one way to do it. And these two women from the same corner of Appalachia uh, made chow chow in two really different ways. And um, I thought that was, that was startling to me. Um, But they ended up kind of tasting pretty similar though. I was surprised by that too. It was interesting because they obviously, you know, they're they're from a pretty small, tight area there, but their approaches were very different, and it, it led me to to wonder if you're you know you were at the Chow Chow Festival in Asheville, what did you find was different from, say, common 
North Carolina chow chow to what you experienced in Whitesburg? Um, well, you know, the thing I, I would say more interesting to me were the things that I saw that were similar. Um, and, you know, in most cases, both North Carolina chow chow and uh, Kentucky chow chow, there's there's generally turmeric in it. And, you know, that is one of the the, the, the historical um, kind of markers that I have followed in that, you know, talking about that mango pickle so many years ago um, when uh, the UK occupied India, um, British officers fell in love with mango pickles. And when they went back to the UK, they brought all the spices that they, they um, came to love in India. They brought them back to the UK and wanted to make something similar. But in the absence of mangoes, they used peaches. And then people um, moved from the UK to the uh, what is now the American South and brought those spices with them and the the pickle peach uh, tradition. And, you know, that turmeric came to really define all of our relishes in the American South. And so to, to watch that, you know, thread from India to the UK to, you know, the, to North Carolina to Kentucky and watch that spice travel through um, and, you know, mark its, its genesis in India is, I think, so, so incredibly fascinating and kind of, you know, a history lesson in itself. It is, and you you follow that thread, and then of course you're you're talking to the Brown in the South group, who are South Asian, and they they kind of reunite with that turmeric theme when they when they come here and begin applying their own cooking techniques to the ingredients, and and the ingredients aren't always different. Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, it shows us that really um, we have been sharing uh, food traditions and cultural traditions and um, cooking techniques for for centuries, really. And, you know, in this time when we're, you know, experiencing this like worldwide pandemic, um, you know, I think it's it's little facts like that that, you know, can make us feel less alone. So sort of looking at your time in Kentucky, and I know you didn't get to spend a lot of time here, but I've always thought of Kentucky and North Carolina as being somewhat similar. Obviously, there are differences. Uh, We don't have a coast like North Carolina does, so there's uh, less of an emphasis maybe on seafood and some things like that. What what was your impression generally of Kentucky and and, uh, what you found here when, when you visited? Um, well, you know, I, I found the people to be just so warm and welcoming and to have a genuine love of their place um, from Whitesburg to Lexington um, and, and all in between. Uh, I found the uh, rural food traditions to be incredibly similar. Um, you know, uh, soup beans and chow chow and cornbread is not a combination that, you know, is, you know, pervasive in Eastern North Carolina, but certainly the humble nature of that, you know, like a bowl of something kind of boring, like beans made exciting by, you know, a condiment like chow chow, and then meant to be sopped up with 
um, a cornmeal product like cornbread is something that I, I certainly uh, connected to. And, you know, I'll never forget my first experience eating neck bones and taters, and, <laughs> which was at the Cane Kitchen. Um, that, that, was, that was the largest uh, pot of, of neck bones and taters that I have ever seen. I'll, oh, I'll it was that. fantastic, too. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, uh, Whitesburg must have, you know, the corner on the neck bone market. Because I think so. I wouldn't even know where to find them if I if I tried to make that dish. Well, soup, beans, and cornbread. Growing up, I mean, that was uh, that was just kind of the standard uh, everyday meal. Not you know, we didn't have it every day, but just but that was what you went back to all the time. And uh, I remember uh, my uh, my father and grandparents. They would you know have have soup, beans, and cornbread, and they would maybe have a a, a fresh onion on the side and they would just you you just eat the onion you know along with it and not necessarily put it on it they would just kind of take a bite of it you know and it's uh it's a very it's a very humble cuisine in a lot of ways but there there's authenticity to it and and they they found ways as you said to make it interesting and to do creative things with it yeah, and there seems to be a lot of pride in it. You know, when we were uh, gleaning the garden in preparation for making the chow chow, um, I believe it was Regina was um, talking about how, you know, at the end of the summer and the beginning of fall, you know, the whole family was really working to, to can, you know, all kinds of condiments and preserves. And it was important for them to taste good, but it was also important for them to be beautiful because they would then display them in a pantry um, like, you know, little jewels. And, you know, I, I could um, really relate to that because, you know, I, I grew up in a house with a lot of canned food and, um, you know, my grandmother had a love for preserving and she took such pride in, in, in not only how it tasted, but how it all looked on the shelf. So I, that was I, yeah, that was a line that really struck me too. I've got I've, I have that one jotted in my notes that you know it's not only a matter of tasting good, but it need but it needs to be beautiful. And that I think that's a human longing to 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 want things to be attractive, to want to want things to be beautiful. Yeah, because in so many ways, um, it's an art form. And when you live um, in a rural place and and you're you're bracing for winter you know you want to surround yourself with as much beauty as you can you had a quote it's actually on the back of your of your book but from your introduction on deep run roots you say eastern north carolina is my tuscany my uh, Sichuan, my provence is that is is that really the i guess the driving force of behind what you're doing that that mindset yeah, you know, I mean, I think for so long in uh, the U.S., we have looked elsewhere to find inspiration um, for our food. And, you know, that quote really speaks to my belief that, you know, no matter where you come from, um, your, your place has very distinct cooking traditions that represent the, the place and the, the people who settled there. Um, and those cooking traditions were shaped both by, you know, terrain and climate and 
um, and, and by the people who, who settled there. And Eastern North Carolina and, you know, Eastern Kentucky have distinct uh, food traditions and a distinct voice as it relates to, to cuisine and cooking that is, that is similar and certainly equal to those of Provence and Sichuan and Tuscany. All of those places are, um, you know, rural places in other parts of the world that, you know, their cooking traditions were shaped by, you know, frugality and um, the need not to waste anything. And so much of that uh, resonates with my place um, in eastern North Carolina and certainly uh, uh, Appalachian, Kentucky. So I saw some of the preview clips for the show and did I did I catch a glimpse of Chef Edward Lee? Is he does he make an appearance? Yes, he does. He is in the dumpling episode. Okay. Well, of course, uh, Chef Lee is is one of uh, one of our great chefs of Kentucky, so I wanted to wanted to see what he was up to. So which which episode is that? You remember? Um, I think it's maybe number three. It's the dumpling episode. And, you know, in the dumpling episode, we're really trying to get to the, the bottom of what a dumpling is. Because, you know, when I ask you, what a, why don't you define what you think a dumpling is for me? Oh, my, that, that's hard. I mean, when, I guess when I think of dumplings, I think of chicken and, <laughs> you know, right. chicken and dumplings. And so uh, it's, it's some sort of uh, bread bread-like product that's been boiled um that i guess that's that would be my most basic definition i'm sure there's a lot more to it I, but uh but i'm you know thinking of it in terms of of chicken and dumplings which was a a product uh, food that i grew up with yes no and you're you're absolutely right um and ed actually um argues that the southern uh you know, version of dumplings is different from every other dumpling in the world. Oh. And, but we <laughs> let him, true. no, no, we let him, um, we let him come out and say that, but then, you know, the rest of the episode is kind of about, um, you know, proving that wrong because, you know, one of the most ubiquitous dumplings across the world is the matzo ball dumpling. Sure. Yeah. And so you do have these two disparate traditions of uh, very rustic, boiled dough, as in, you know, our chicken and dumplings. And where I come from, it's uh, called chicken and pastry. And matzo ball dumplings juxtaposed with, you know, very kind of precious, uh, you know, Asian style dumplings or pierogies from Eastern Europe, where there's a little bit of meat or vegetables that are, you know, folded into dough. um, And then that dough is either boiled or steamed or fried. But the purpose of a dumpling is um, really in, meant to stretch. So our matzo balls, our chicken and dumplings, that's meant to stretch like a little bit of meat across a plate, across a meal. And, you know, same thing with, you know, the, you know, shumais and the pierogies of the world. You know, you've got a little bit of filling wrapped in a dough um, and, and that dough, you know, stretches that filling and makes it something exceptional and special. So, uh, that was, that episode was so much fun, um, to kind of, you know, really understand what, what a dumpling is and, and, and what, uh, function it serves on our tables. Yeah. I really look forward to seeing that one. And I also saw that you have a hand pie episode, which was of particular interest to me because one of my favorite foods in the world 
was my grandmother's dried apple hand pies that she would make. And she would fry these hand pies, but sort of tying back in with the trip to, uh, to Whitesburg, where they talk about things either being pickled or dried. They would always dry apples. I remember my grandparents would have apples spread out outside to dry, and then they would then they would store them and would make these wonderful stack cakes and hand pies from them. Yeah, I would say that dried apples are certainly um, an Appalachian tradition. It's also something that we did in eastern North Carolina. Um, and at, we call those hand pies uh, Apple Jacks. Did y'all do that or... We, we just always called them hand pies. Hand pies. Yeah. Um, yeah, the hand pie episode was, was really... And they in- were always fried. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, hand pies are, you know, such an interesting subject as well because they're a lot, they're laborious to make, right? But they're, they were, you know, historically um, laborious to make, but then for people who were, you know, laboring or working because, you know, it was a snack or a, a food that you could hold with one hand um, and it was meant for convenience. Um, and, and so, you know, again, like the hand pie across communities, across cultures serves a very specific function, no matter what's inside of it. Right. Uh, and generally I always remember fruit hand pies. I don't remember anyone ever making a savory hand pie. And obviously those are traditional in, in a lot of places, but, um, that's not something that we had for whatever reason. It just never developed. Right. Well, have you ever had a pepperoni roll? I have had a pepperoni roll. Yes. The, the, the West, the West Virginia tradition of pepperoni rolls. Yeah. So we would argue that that is a hand pie like, um, you know, it was also, you know, an American adaptation of uh, uh, an Italian snack. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, some crafty housewife uh, decided to roll the stick of pepperoni up in a, in her yeast roll dough for her husband who was going down in the mine so that he would have a convenient lunch to eat. And, um, you know, I think that's, an, an example of the theme that we go to over and over in this show is, you know, where you come from, what you bring with you, and then where you land um, and the type of work that you do, how that shapes the traditions you have. People know a good thing when they see it. So it, it caught on and, and it, that's not something you would expect in West Virginia, but there it is. Yeah, I would say that um, soup beans and chow chow and cornbread would be probably Kentucky's uh, state dish, and I would say pepperoni rolls would be um, West Virginia's. Yeah, I think I think West Virginia would absolutely agree with you about that. Well, I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me, and I know that this is kind of a stressful time for uh, folks like you who are trying to keep restaurants afloat, and I wish you well with that and, uh, and hope that... Um, that the damage is not too severe to the restaurants that we, that we all love and enjoy. Well, thank you very much. I'm hoping the same for all of us in this industry. And we're looking forward to the TV show. I will, I will throw in an objection that you don't have an Avit brothers theme this, this time, but, uh, but we'll watch anyway. Yeah, well, we do have uh, Rhiannon Giddens and um, it's a beautiful like song with a lot of energy and, you know, um, you know, nothing like the Avid Brothers, but I, I, I actually think this 
turned out it, really it, awesome. Yeah, it is. It is nice. I've I'm just I'm a particular Avett Brothers fan, so I always enjoyed enjoyed the other uh, the other theme. But no, it's it's beautiful. It's it's I will say uh, based on the episode I saw, they're they're beautifully filmed and produced, and uh, and the the music is is lovely and fits in beautifully with uh, with what you're doing. Well, thank you, thank you. We feel really um, proud of what we were able to do. So I, I will throw in, you've got uh, just a couple of things. You've got a couple of new restaurants coming in Charleston. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, a restaurant called Lenore, which actually is named after the county that I come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Fantastic. A, a coffee shop grab and go spot called Handy and Hot. That'll be great. So Hopefully I've, opening I've, or, in June. Yeah, lots of folks travel down to Charleston and there's hardly a a place I would rather be than Charleston. So some, some Vivian Howard will be down there as well. And uh, I understand that you may be working on a second book. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, we're shooting some of the last photos for the book today, and it's called uh, This Will Make It Taste Good, and it will come out in October. Ah, fantastic. So we've got something to look forward to in the fall, too. Yes, Definitely. All right. Well, I hope you you make it to Kentucky on your book tour, and maybe we can try to connect when that happens. I definitely will. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, and hope we can talk again. Thank you so much, Alan. You can find links to Chef Vivian Howard's website and relevant social media in show notes. A special thank you to Andrea Weigel for arranging the interview and being patient with my questions and requests. Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes, and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky, where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett.